Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we get going, we have two quick shouts out. Shouts out! Woo! Well, I said shout shout outs and then shouts out because I wasn't sure. They're shouts out. Yeah. Thank you <laughs> to Anastasia and Ryan for becoming monthly Patreon subscribers. Woo-hoo! Thank you so much. Um, so your donations go right back into making the podcast better with every single episode. And <laughs> you get access to extra monthly content that isn't available on the main feed. And when we get our technology working together all at the same time with both audio and video. Your your donations go right into making the podcast better by allowing us to buy a webcam. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've been trying really hard to stream when we record our episodes and boy, we're, we're new at this and we're not so great at it. <laughs> we're going to get better though and provide that extra video content for our Patreon subscribers. And then if you tune in when we're actually streaming, uh, because we'll post notifications on social media, then you can see us and see all the goofs and mumbles and stuff that usually hit the cutting room floor, as it were. So listeners, if you're interested in joining our Patreon and getting all those perks, you can do that at a number of different levels at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. But you know, we understand times are weird and Please, please don't feel obligated to uh, to pitch in. We love that you listen. We do. Yeah. We do love that. You look so stressed. Me? You're, yeah. This, this, like this, whole, like, this, whole, this whole failed stream really took it out of me. <laughs> I know. Right? I feel the same way. Oh, God. That was like 40 minutes of trying. Oh, God. That was. <sighs> you know, that wasn't the worst 40 minutes of my day, even. Oh, well, you're welcome for that. All right. Well, this week... We are headed to a part of the globe that we really haven't visited recently. Australia. Yep. Australia. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to do it, but I did it very quietly. Australia. Um, it has taken us 90 episodes. Ugh. Oh, my God. Ugh. It's episode 91. But we are finally going to talk about archaeology down under. Yeah, we've... Uh... <laughs> We've been remiss, to say the least. And we've, you know, we've touched on a number of topics that have to do with Australian history and culture, but it's a huge continent that has been inhabited for longer than you might think. So there's a lot to talk about, and we're going to start at the beginning, at least the beginning for our podcast purposes. When did people first get to Australia? And for that matter, how? And, you know, just a disclaimer here, we are barely going to scratch the surface of the things that we could talk about, about Australian culture and history and prehistory. So there's more episodes to come, but here's where we're starting. So the timing of the first arrival of humans in Australia has been studied and debated for decades. Now, researchers have found evidence that suggests the ancestors of Aboriginal Australians landed in the northern part of Australia at least 65,000 years ago. The finding, which was published in the journal Nature, pushes back the timing of when people first came to the continent by about 5,000 to 18,000 years. It also suggests that humans coexisted with colossal Australian animals like giant wombats and wallabies long before the megafauna went extinct. Wallabies. Previous archaeological digs and dating has suggested people migrated to Australia between 47,000 and 60,000 years ago. But a new excavation at an Aboriginal rock shelter called Majed Bebe revealed human relics that dated back 65,000 years. Chris Clarkson, an archaeologist from the University of Queensland in Australia and lead author of the study, said, presumably in a delightful <laughs> accent that I will not be doing, we were gobsmacked. By the richness of material, it sounds so lame in my accent, gobsmacked. 
We're gabsmacked. We were gabsmacked by the richness of material that we were finding at the site. Fireplaces intact, a ring of grindstones around it, and there were human burials in their graves. No one dreamed of a site so rich and so old in Australia. So the Majid Bebe site had been studied in the 1970s, but during more recent visits in 2012 and 2015, Dr. Clarkson and his colleagues recovered more than 11,000 artifacts from the deepest layers of the excavation pit. In addition to uncovering leftovers of an ancient campfire and archaic mortars and pestles, which like, probably just the same as a regular mortar and pestle. It's a form that hasn't changed much. Um, <laughs> they also found... No, the, the new ones are like... Wi-Fi enabled. They're Bluetooth, Bluetooth enabled. It's an internet of things. Siri, Siri, grind my herbs. <laughs> <laughs> the archaeologists also found flaked stone tools and painting material. They also unearthed the earliest known examples of edge ground axes, which are stone axes that would have had handles, which were 20,000 years older than those found anywhere else in the world. Dr. Clarkson said that the finding provides further insight into the complex capabilities of ancient humans, as well as the chronology of when they migrated from Africa and spread across the world. To determine the age of the artifacts found at the site, the team had to date the sediment layer where they were buried. They first performed radiocarbon dating on sediment starting at the surface until they got to layers that were about 37,000 years old, and that is towards the end of usefulness of radiocarbon dating. They then shifted to a technique called optically stimulated luminescence, or OSL, for the deepest layers, which was used to measure the last time the sand in the rock shelter was exposed to sunlight. So we've talked about this before on our dating episode, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, but it's so wild. Yeah. <laughs> but in this case, I'm very grateful to the author of this article, Nicholas St. Floor, um, for this very tidy bit of explanation of OSL dating. He said it sort of much better than I could have, I think. Think of a grain of sand as an empty battery that slowly okay. collects charge once it's buried. As long as it remains in the dark, it will continue gaining energy over time. If researchers can recover the grain of sand and keep it dark, they can then use a laser to release the charge within it. By measuring the amount of energy that the grain of sand releases and comparing that with the amount of radiation that the sand was exposed to while it was buried, researchers can determine when it was last in sunlight. So it collects ambient radiation. What you do is you put what's called a dosimeter in the ground and it measures over the course of a year how much ambient radiation there is. And then you, you know, you do the math and you backtrack until you get how many years that grain of sand has been not exposed to sunlight. At the site, when it was dark, Zenobia Jacobs, a geochronologist from the University of Wollongong, and her colleagues used long tubes to bore into the sand layers where they found artifacts and collected 56 samples. Back at the lab, she painstakingly measured more than 28,500 individual grains of sand uh, and used a laser to determine their ages. After getting her, I would say that's a robust sample size. <laughs> After getting her results, the team sent several samples to independent labs to double-check its work. The results came back verified. Jacobs also helped confirm that the sand had not been significantly disturbed for tens of thousands of years. That meant that it could provide an accurate assessment for the age of the artifacts. So that gives us the when, but not the how. And for that, we look to DNA. But before we do that, a quick ad break. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. 
We're back. Hello again. Hi. Recently, with the assistance of Aboriginal Australian co-authors, an international team of scientists sequenced 83 modern Aboriginal Australian and 25 modern Papuan genomes. The research teams used this genomic data and combined it with linguistic data to characterize the peopling of Australia. Their, the work reveals, among other things, three key dates. So, and this is from um, a Science Daily article mm -hmm. that was published in 2016. Um, yeah, and so this is actually before the 65,000-year-old date had been established. So these are hypotheses coming from earlier dates. Yeah. Um, so uh, the article says, it's often been hypothesized that the ancestors of modern Papuans and Australians must have left Africa far earlier than any other population if they were to reach New Guinea and Australia 47,000 years ago, you know, or if the authors of this this article had been listening to us a few minutes ago, they would learn <laughs> much earlier. <laughs> uh, alas. I know. So, uh, and that's suggested by, that was suggested by the fossil record. And so that has been adjusted. Mm. Um, article goes on to say, researchers discovered, however, that this is most probably not the case. They estimate that around 72,000 years ago, an ancestral population common to Aboriginal Australians, Europeans, and East Asians left the African continent. Professor Laurent Escoffier. Escoffier. Yeah, it's like the, the food guy, but not. He was a coffee, but now he's not. So he's an ex-coffee. <laughs> Professor Laurent Escoffier of the SIB Swiss Institute of Bioinformatics and the University of Bern explains, Bern. quote, discussions have been intense as to what extent Aboriginal Australians represent a separate out of Africa exit to those of Asians and Europeans. We find that once we take into account admixture with the archaic humans, the vast majority of Aboriginal Australian genetic makeup comes from the same African exit as other non-Africans. Yeah, so That's everybody cool. left around the same time, ish. Yeah. So um, modern humans had reached Asia by seventy thousand years ago before moving down through Southeast Asia and into Australia. However, Homo sapiens were not the first people to inhabit the region. An older species, Homo erectus, had already been in Asia for at least 1.5 million years. It's possible that these two species may have coexisted, as new dates for Indonesian Homo erectus suggest they may have survived there until as recently as 50,000 years ago. But Homo erectus remains have never been, on been found in Australia. Yeah, and it's um, hypothesized that Homo erectus are the sort of ancestral population that gave rise to Homo floresiensis, who mm. lived in Indonesia. So uh, they may have evolved in different directions, but they never got to Australia as far as we know. As far as we know. Yeah. I mean. We may find them yet. So some key fossil finds from Asia include Solo Man. <laughs> <laughs> He's a loner, a rebel. Anna puts in the script here, sad frozen and carbonate. I mean. <laughs> I that, love it. That was an optional joke. I'm glad you enjoyed optional it. Optional joke. That's a good joke. Thank you. He's also, but where is his cup? He's Toby Keith. Yes, thank you. Yep. It's a great song. <laughs> it's a great song. Um, homo erect. So Solo Man was a, a Homo erectus man discovered in Ngangdong, Indonesia. Solo Man shares similarities with earlier Homo erectus specimens found um, in Southwest Asia and is considered to be a late Homo erectus. Yeah, because he's dead. Boy, he's <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I could see also if we look at the, the published date range, I could yeah, see why he may, be, yeah. he may be late. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, its age is uncertain, and because of its exact its because its exact original location is unknown, published dates have ranged from fifty thousand to five hundred thousand years old. A range, just so, pick, just throw a dart. A see range where it between sticks. now and not now. Yeah, <laughs> before um, now. So, if the younger age is correct, then it's possible that Homo erectus may have shared this region with Homo sapiens, which is very cool. But it's a range of four hundred fifty thousand oh. years. May have shared. <laughs> Durr. Oi. So we've got Wajak, mm -hmm. another guy here. Um, this also feels a bit like Star Wars. Wajak, <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, it's no, I mean, it's not a blatantly stupid name like so many. It doesn't Star have, Wars. yeah, it doesn't have um, like three what, unnecessary like, apostrophes. Like, names like Kit Fisto. <laughs> like, who? Nope. I refuse to engage. Who did this? Ah, nerds. Okay. Watch Jack. The Homo like sapiens discovered in 1889 in Java, Indonesia. So the age is between 8,000 and 20,000 years old. Less of a spread, but still. So originally, the skull was thought to be about 50,000 years old, and attempts were made to link this skull with the arrival of the first Australians. However, dating methods have been unable to determine exactly how old it is. A lot of dating methods are that way. Right? What, with unreliable profile pictures? Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I, I am picking up what you're putting down. Great. I'm smelling what you're stepping in. <laughs> So, uh, however, it's now thought to be probably less than 20,000 years old. Which is just like, cool, 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 cool. Thanks. <laughs> um, and then there's Jukudian, Upper Cave 101. That's the name of the individual. That's, you know. Yeah. That's, um, who is another Homo sapiens person discovered in 1933 in Jukudian, presumably in the Upper Cave, in yeah. China. Yep. So the age is between 10,000 and 25,000 years old. Yep. So in the past. So there has always been an ocean separating Asia and Australia. So, you know, lots of continents have been smushed up against each other. Yeah. Sometimes there were land bridges. Sometimes the continents touched. In these cases, nope. Always water between them. Yeah. I was about to be like, yeah, I heard about it. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, I heard it in the script in the next paragraph. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, why don't you share with the rest of the class <laughs> this fun fact that I learned earlier today when I read the script. Um, We're doing so, so well. Happy quarantine, at times, everybody. At times, the distance was reduced, but the earliest travelers still had to navigate across large stretches of water. Which, you know, presumably they didn't do by doggy paddling. We're assuming some kind of boat technology or raft technology or something. For much of its history, Australia was joined to New Guinea, forming a landmass called Sahul. These countries were finally separated by rising sea levels around 8,000 years ago. Genetic evidence supports the close ties between these two countries. The indigenous peoples from these regions are more closely related to each other than to anyone else in the world, suggesting a recent common ancestry. Mm -hmm. There are a number of likely paths of migration across Asia and into Sahul. Uh, these are based on the shortest possible route and take into consideration the land bridges that would appear during times of low sea levels. However, travel may have also occurred when sea levels were high. High sea levels would have reduced the amount of usable land and increased the population pressure. During these times, it may have been necessary to expand into new areas. The settlement of Australia is the first unequivocal evidence of a major sea crossing Yar. And rates is one of the greatest achievements of early humans. However, the motive and circumstances regarding the arrival of the first Australians is a matter for conjecture. It may have been a deliberate attempt to colonize new territory or an accident after being caught in monsoon winds. Remember that episode we did where uh, it was the, the Bigfoot episode where we talked about the minimum population size needed to support the, you know, carrying on a population Without, and it was like pretty small. It was very small, but it was like 98 people. Yeah. So, and that was granted that was extrapolated from an article about a mission to Mars. But in <laughs> kind of in the same vein, understanding the colonization of a whole new continent, um, if you would need a population of at least that size, then the idea of being caught in monsoon winds, it would have to be a lot of people out on boats. It And it like... I mean, it could be. No, I'm not saying it couldn't have happened. I just, you know, it makes me wonder about the circumstances even more because in well, order to sort of feasibly spread a population if without... If we're thinking about like tens of thousands of years, if we're thinking about thousands of years going by, mm -hmm. I think about, it's not just like a like Gilligan's Island style monsoon like situation and getting stranded. It could be like them being on a land mass and then ending up on an island and they can get back to like, they just end up in like, they get blown. They're in their little right. boats. Yeah. There's back and they, they get blown, back and but forth. they can still get home. And they're like, 
Whoa. We, we found this place. It was, it looked, we, it looked like, good. This is a cool island. And then it just sort of like through yeah. okay. like a set many accidents over thousands of years. That's true. Yeah. You like, you may not be intentionally charting territory, but territory is being charted. They yeah. may not have been like into like colonizing. And I would have been like, we're going to find new frontiers. I could have just been like, whoops, I found this place. That's pretty dope. And then you should see the size could, of the wallabies. Oh my God. <laughs> just, like this guy with the wallabies again. <laughs> <laughs> so it could it could be as well when we as we continue in the script, we will get into like some deep time. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm ready to think about this. But it could be that not one accident, but yes, so, being yes. accidental versus intentional. Um, right. And it's not like monsoons only happen rarely. There, there's a season yeah. for them. In a that whole part of the season world. every year. Yeah. yeah. The lack of preservation of any ancient boat means archaeologists will probably never know what kind of craft was used for the journey oh. because they are made of ephemeral materials and used in an environment that doesn't lend itself to preservation. Nope. Um, none of the boats used by Aboriginal people in ancient times are suitable for major voyages. So the most likely suggestion has been rafts made of bamboo, a material common in Asia. Yeah. And it floats. It's helpful. That is helpful. <laughs> so that is the when and some speculation as to the how. We can't always guarantee answers. You know, we're, we're archaeologists, not magicians. But we can't talk about the earliest Australians without talking about one in particular. And actually, as you'll see, two in particular. Oh. Yeah. This next section comes from a couple of places, mostly a Smithsonian Magazine article, but also, spoiler, <laughs> a site called visitmungo.com. Um, .au. .au. Yes, it's an Australian website. On July 15th, 1968, Jim Bowler, an Australian researcher studying ice geology, was working on the fossilized lake beds of Lake Mungo. So in case you're wondering, Lake Mungo was named by Scottish settlers after St. Mungo, who is the patron saint of the city of Glasgow. I always thought it was an indigenous word, but no. So as Jim Bowler was surveying the lake beds, he spotted charcoal and bone fragments by the shoreline of the ancient lake. So it's not a lake anymore. It is the remains of a lake. So nobody at his university got terribly excited about it. In fact, it took eight months before he and two colleagues wangled a research grant, a whopping $94 to cover fuel for a bus and two nights in a motel. Man, that's real. Yep. That's, that's, that hasn't changed. <laughs> that is a reality of funding mm. one's research. When the trio cleared away the sand, as Bowler tells it, quote, out dropped a piece of cranium, end quote. Then came part of a jawbone, followed by a human tooth. The body had been deliberately burned. The bones crushed smaller and burned again, seemingly a cremation. After they carried the bones back to the Australian National University in Canberra, in a suitcase, <laughs> a physical anthropologist named Alan Thorne spent six months reconstructing the skull from 500 fragments. So if anyone out there is working on a quarantine jigsaw. I think that counts as invigorated in my app. I have a crossword app, a, a, sorry, a puzzle app. And so there are different levels and like invigorated. Yeah. So that's sort of like zen, calm. Oh, I see. Engaged. When you want to be stimulated. You do. Yeah. The results of this skull reconstruction proved beyond doubt that this was Homo sapiens, a slender female around 25 years old when she died. When Mungo Lady, as she was dubbed, was carbon dated to 26,000 years ago, it destroyed the lingering 19th century racist notion that Aboriginal people have had evolved from a primitive Neanderthal-like species. Also, Mungo Lady. I mean, my lady. Would Mungo Woman have been better? I don't Mungo know. female. I feel like Mungo Lady and then also calling her Slender, like the combination of those two things is like. It was the you know. 70s. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like sexually harassing. Like, No, no, I don't. I didn't mean to imply that. I just meant. It's a lady. <laughs> she had a little pink bow. Got a bow on her head. On February 26th, 1974, Jim Bowler was again at Lake Mungo when unusually torrential summer rains hit. And he recalls, quote, there was a pristine new surface on the dunes. Love that. He went back to where he had found Mungo Lady and followed the same geological layer. He spotted white bone. 
He recalls, quote, I brushed away the sand and there was a mandible, which meant the rest of the body might be in the ground, end quote. Stellar observation, Jim. He does ice. Yeah, but He's like. He's doing great for a guy that focuses on ice. And not even ice that's there. Past ice. Dead ice. Hmm. The news revolutionized the timeline of human migration, proving that Homo sapiens had arrived in Australia far earlier than scientists imagined as part of the Great Migration from East Africa across Asia and into the Americas. So this was Mungo Man. This was a different individual. Just as revolutionary was what Mungo Man meant for the understanding of Aboriginal culture. Up until Mungo, Aboriginals had been frequently denigrated, Bowler said bluntly. They were ignorant savages, treacherous. Suddenly, here was a new indication of extraordinary sophistication. And, end quote. The reverent treatment of the body, the oldest ritual burial site ever found, revealed a concern for the afterlife eons before the Egyptian pyramids. Two of Mungo Man's canine teeth in the lower jaw were also missing, possibly the result of an adolescent in- initiation ceremony, and there were the remains of a circular fireplace found nearby. And Buller said, quote, it took me a long time to digest the implications, end quote. Today, <laughs> Aboriginal people still use smoke to cleanse the dead. And so Buller goes on to say, quote, it's the same ritual, and there it was 40,000 years ago, end quote. All the evidence pointed to a spectacular conclusion. Aboriginal people belong to the oldest continuous culture on the planet. Mungo Man's body had been lowered carefully into the ground and sprinkled with red ochre, a clear indicator of some kind of funerary ritual. Anthropologists studied Mungo Man's remains. His skeleton was so well-preserved that scientists could establish he was about 50 years of age, with his right elbow arthritic from throwing a spear all his life and his teeth worn, either from diet or possibly from stripping reeds for twine. Those remains, incidentally, were finally returned home in 2017 to be cared for by Mungo Man's descendants. The Nyampa, the Mutimuti, and uh, Pakanti people often referred to as the three TTGs, or traditional tribal groups. When Mungo Man walked this landscape some 40,000 years ago, the freshwater lake that would later be called Lake Mungo, we don't know what it was called then, was around 25 feet deep, teeming with wildlife and surrounded by forests dappled with golden wattle. (laughs) Wattle. Like the rest of Australia, it had once been the domain of megafauna, a bizarre antipodean menagerie that had evolved over the 800 million years of isolation before the aboriginal hunter-gatherers arrived. There were enormous hairy wombats called diprotodons that weighed over two tons that's really big. It's 4,000 pounds. Towering. There, there, I think their name means two big front teeth. Diprotodons. Two front teeth. two front teeth. I mean, that's not very descriptive. You could also call Bugs Bunny that, but it doesn't mean 4,000 pounds of wombat. It's great. Wow. In addition to 4,000 pounds of wombat, there were towering flightless birds called Gignornis. That is a Dungeons and Dragons name. Gignornis. Yeah. Gignornit. Guinea. King. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Some bird. (laughs) And Macropus Titan. What does that translate to, Amber? It literally translates to Bigfoot. Bigfoot. (laughs) Bigfoot Titan. Which I mean. Super Bigfoot. Super Bigfoot. Which, yeah, because it was a nine foot tall kangaroo. It's just unnecessary. Yeah. Frankly, (laughs) yes. I agree. The megafauna's fate was sealed when Homo sapiens landed on the Australian coast sometime between 47,000 and 65,000 years ago. Can you imagine rocking up to a place and then being like, what is that? Nine foot tall. (laughs) (laughs) Pogo stick of an animal. Um, Scientists believe that around 1,000 sapiens traveled by boat from Indonesia, just 60 miles away then, thanks to low ocean levels, to become the first human inhabitants of Australia. But like we just said, maybe it didn't happen that way. Faunal evidence suggests the megafauna were hunted to extinction by the newcomers and had disappeared by the time of Mungo Man. But the landscape... Hmm? um, Cuddy Springs is another site in um, Australia that is like really good at tracking the like showing through like different deposition layers Mm -hmm. of human megafauna overlap 
<laughs> oh, yeah. in Australia. So I, I can include that in the show notes. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Please it's do. that they have like a little thing on it at the Australian Museum. Cool. But that's one where they're just like, it's sort of like a La Brea tar pit kind of situation. Yeah. Everyone like was around and. And they just like kept drowning and like getting stuck. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> Maybe stop going there. I mean, but have you seen, have you seen the nine foot tall <laughs> kangaroos? <laughs> It's worth it. <laughs> Faunal evidence suggests that the megafauna were hunted to extinction by the newcomers and had disappeared by the time of Mungo Man, but the landscape was still bountiful. Middens reveal that residents harvested fish, mussels, and yabbies, which are freshwater crayfish, from the lake waters and trapped small marsupials, collected emu eggs, and grew sweet potato. So that sounds pretty great. Sounds well, all right. Yeah. I've, never, I've never eaten a small marsupial, but hey. Sure. I think I have. <laughs> well, while Amber tries to remember what small marsupial she's No, consumed. I think I've had possum before. Oh, yeah, that counts. They're like the at wild game dinners at church yeah. growing up. They're um, the only North American marsupial. They're pretty great. Do you want yeah. an ad? I, do, I would like an ad. Yes, please. Let's have an ad. Okay. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Hello again. Hi. Hey, um, so far in this episode, we've managed to discuss about 25,000 years of the archaeological record in what's today Australia. What a whirlwind. And yet we're still 40,000 years from the present. <laughs> that's how I feel right now. So that's a lot of time a long time ago. So let's fast forward for a moment. Just a second. Come with me on this. This year, 2020, marks the 250th anniversary of the arrival of the British explorer and Admiral James Cook at the continent in 1770. So multiple European explorers had already been there, including a Dutch guy who tried to call it New Holland. It's unimaginative. Um, I but mean, New Amsterdam. I know. Like, New York. Stop, stop. I mean, New Amsterdam is like the same problem. I know. <laughs> I'm like, just saying, exactly like, problem. clearly like, the Dutch have a pattern. <laughs> I mean, not not sure just do. the Dutch, but yeah. <laughs> so, uh, multiple European explorers had already been there, but Cook was the first to make it to the eastern coastline. So, sort of like the southeastern coastline. 17 years later, Britain decided that it was time to establish their colony at Botany Bay, which is today part of Sydney, New South Wales. So, where... Pretty much where Cook had shown up. Um, the first British colonies were for prisoners, as is well known in yep. popular culture. Um, but by the beginning of the 19th century, they were ready for some full tilt boogie colonization. <laughs> like they, um, in like colony 1799. <laughs> so in like 1799-ish, yeah. um, there were colonies established that were just like come buy some land yeah in this continent we found um less about sending people there more about giving people the chance to move there um and so with that came exploration of the continent with the intent of finding resource to exploit and land to claim and then sell to people and um also with that came genocide against the communities whose territory they were invading sadly yes so that's the most succinct I've ever made. <laughs> that Colonization. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Great work. I mean, um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> 
So during this time, so sort of with the 19th century events, there were also plenty of scientific expeditions to study all the bonkers, venomous creatures that littered the landscape. And Um, just like the, the geography of the land in general, and nearly everyone died. Like every single one of those exploratory parties just went so very wrong. Yeah. And so several of them also had ethnic. They got better at it after a while. But um, like remarkably repeated all like they, you know, went on expeditions with like full writing desks. And Um, yeah, it's just bad. I mean, it's just like. (laughs) um, Yeah. An early illustration of the Dunning-Kruger effect. (laughs) Yeah. I think you can't um, fail upwards when your actual survival is at stake, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, so um, several of these also had ethnographic aims as well to study, but not necessarily to understand or anything. The indigenous yeah. populations they encountered. Yeah. Um, so collections like that at the Australian Museum, um, which is like sort of sort of like the Smithsonian of Australia. <laughs> Like it's a, like it's a, it's a government, like it's a federal, it's a federally funded and like underwritten institution. Mm -hmm. It just happens to all be in like under one aegis, whereas like the Smithsonian has lots of. Yeah, the Smithsonian is multiple things. Like subsidiaries and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So collections like that are full of cultural materials that were taken from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities through the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, And a lot of them just say collected yeah um and while they are an invaluable resource uh for preserving examples of material culture uh, because these are things made of ephemeral materials Mm -hmm. uh, so they're able to be like conserved and preserved and also we can access traditions that have been lost through the process of colonization it does give an unfortunate impression of, of people that arrived like a mind-blowingly long time ago and then just like remained static until white people showed up which like, is not what happened which isn't what happened and like is um and so i was like when i was working on this i was kind of bummed about this i was like oh, i don't want to make it seem like that's the case um because this is sort of like what there is like easily accessible research on mm-hmm. of of more of like post contact post colonization and then like early early human yeah as, as if there's nothing between those things yeah as if and so i was like what's up with that um and so I'm not and I'm not saying that in any way that's what museums and collections are trying to say or are like that's what they actually think. Um, but but rather than just like complaining about it and being like, oh, because this came up on our Chronica episode. when We talked about like how chronologies are set up in different parts of the world. And it was very much like pre-cook. Post. Cook to like cook to like the colony colony to independence and then contemporary Australia. Yeah. And it's, it's retrospective sort of arbitrary designations of time that doesn't really have anything to do with the reality of actual people living and moving through time. Yeah. And so rather than just like complaining about that, I wanted to spend some time with you and all our listeners to think about how we can, how folks are accessing everything in the middle. Okay. Um, yeah. That sounds great. Right? And so in northern Sydney, the Aboriginal Heritage Office operates in conjunction with local government. So it's like a bunch of councils and, and councils are like kind of suburbs, like kind of. <laughs> it's a like the like local government structure is very different than it is in the U.S. But so it's sort of like townships. Sure. Um, so they work in conjunction with them in northern Sydney. Um, to identify, manage, and protect Aboriginal sites, as well as provide public education about Aboriginal history. Like they do visits to schools and they'll do like walks, mm-hmm. like where they like will like walk through the landscape and talk about like sites and things. Oh, cool. Let's do uh, that. Like really cool stuff. Um, and to, to give people um, information about indigenous perspectives on landscape and the environment and to... Um, 
which is really, which is really invaluable. Um, and so on their website, they have a very cool little website. Um, I shouldn't say little. It's a nice website. I say little because they use papyrus font. Like that's, that's like where my bias comes from. Um, but other than the, their use of papyrus, it's a great website. Um, and on it, they provide an overview of occupation site types, as well as where they're commonly found in the landscape of the Sydney Basin. So it's kind of designed as a, like they have this really cool FAQ and this really great, and like they have a diagram of that shows like in profile, um, like a general landscape feature of there being like the top of a ridge down to where the water source, like down the hill to the water source and then up again. And so showing like what types of Aboriginal occupation sites or, um, or like features you might find. So if you have like your yard, like your property, like, and you can look at that. And so you can go see, like you can sort of get to know what might your have been here backyard in a in yeah. a new way um and so it's re- it's really cool it's like made very accessibly and like very much oriented towards people who are in like a 21st century like township community like still being able to engage with the landscape around them um and so this is relevant to the Sydney Basin. So there are like the ge- like again, Australia is huge. The geography is very varied a- across there. So this is what uh, these are the sorts of things that you might find in the Sydney Basin. So this is again around where Cook showed up. So there, the site types include shell middens, which we've we've talked about before. This is just where you have an accumulation of mature shellfish um <laughs> they've got their lives in order they've got 401ks <laughs> exactly um and because if it were just like a midden you would have like baby shells and and like other things this is where it's like a very much like a deliberate it's like where they would have like processed yeah shellfish for eating they've gone and collected shellfish and they get rid of the parts you don't eat and they toss them in a pile and that is the pile yeah. Um, so there's uh, like rock shelters. And so rock shelters that would have art and that art can include ochre paintings or stencil drawings, like um, the stencil drawings being like if you've ever seen like a handprint mm-hmm. where the, where the paint it's, is it's like done like yeah, around the, the hand. Exactly. Um, and then like, you know, other Rock paintings, like just sort of rock paintings, not at a rock shelter. Um, they talk about isolated finds, like if you find like a stone tool or or other object, that is an Aboriginal occupation site. That is proof that the folks have moved across this landscape before. Um, axe grinding grooves. So these are like very cool. So they you have, um, and this really taught me a lot about how very different the geo- like the geology of the Sydney Basin it like there's a lot of sandstone and there's a lot of exposed boulders like exposed stone in a way that was not the case in central Appalachia where I grew <laughs> like I would not be finding axe grinding grooves so they are grooves in the in in rock where somebody had been sharpening their axe and so sharpening them over like hundreds, if not thousands of years of yeah. people going and using that. And so uh, I sharpened these, my axe here. My grandfather sharpened his axe here. Well, yeah, I like the And so these like the deep gouges in the rock. Um, and so there are there are those there are Bora or ceremonial grounds, uh, burials. It's pretty. Yep. Definitely know someone was there if they are still there. Yep. Um, rock engravings. And so that's that sort of like on those exposed stones mm-hmm. um, and scarred trees, which is something that I am very, I find very cool. So scarred trees and there's a photo of one and I'm just like, Oh, huh. um, and so rather than chopping down trees and then using the bits of tree, um, folks would remove bark from the tree for use on, on something like a, a coolamont or a canoe. So mm-hmm. things that you would need bark for, you just remove it from the tree and then the tree. As long as you don't strip it all the way around, the tree will yeah. keep, will stay alive. 
Um, and then wood removal for you for use. So it would be like digging sticks or boomerangs and then evidence of climbing footholds oh, for cool. like um, if they were hunting opossums or sugar bag, which is honey. Like that, that is accurate. Sugar bag. That's what that um, is. I want to start using that as a term of endearment. Sugar bag. Hey, sugar bag. <laughs> Ew. Um, so uh, like very cool and very like visually striking. It's like, ah, people lived here and used that because unfortunately the case in Northern Sydney, the people like those lifeways have been interrupted completely. Yeah, it's an urban environment now. Yeah. And um, most of the communities that did live there were forced out. Don't live anymore. Yeah. And so they also have carved trees. They have quarries for things like stone and ochre, fish traps and mm-hmm. stone arrangements. So you have these um, f- like formations of, of stones that would have that you see like in the landscape that would be used for like weir, like fish weirs. Mm-hmm. And um, and then. Uh, water like I think this might be the coolest one I thought that like the grinding grooves were cool but water holes where taking like natural depressions in stones and hollowing them out more right as so a means collect of collecting water. like fresh water of yeah. like rainwater and and so just sort of work smarter not harder yeah you just got your little buckets out there like your buckets in the stone um seed grinding patches which is it was using a um is it just I can't flat, of, flat rock and then it's worn away because they use that same spot over and over? No, it's it's basically like a, a built-in, what are they, a matate? Yeah, mano y matate. Yeah, mano y matate. Yeah, that's why I was trying to remember what the other part was. So mano. it was for making flour. Um, so it's So you would have it in there, like in the stone, you have evidence that it was Divots. used... Uh, yeah, as a space for for grinding. So rather than having like a grindstone that you excavate, it's like a whole boulder. <laughs> Have you seen the monkeys that do that? But with nuts, there's no. there's a uh, I don't remember what species of monkey, but basically there are these rock outcroppings, and in those outcroppings are the same kind of divots. But it's just that these monkeys have been repeatedly over I don't know how many thousands of years. Um, placing the nuts that they like to eat in those divots and using them to hold the nuts while they smash them with larger rocks because the nuts have very thick shells. Oh. And so it's just like generations of monkeys using the same same little anvil. Ah, oh, that's very cool. Yeah, I, I saw it in a nature documentary and it was really cute because the monkeys are quite small and the rocks that they use are like them-sized. <laughs> so it's like, smash. Um and speaking of documentaries yes. that take place in the nature, um, on the Aboriginal Heritage Office website, they have a video oh, cool. where they like will. So it's um, like where they're they're going to examples of these in their oh that's cool like, so you can, relevant area you can see them even if you don't have any like idea what that would look like yeah if, so like, all me, of these like Australia. all of these and I'll include the the site on on the show notes because all of them have photos so it's like here's an example of this oh, that's so great. like if you're in your backyard you can be like huh and um I got one of them yeah and then the last one which I think is the one that people probably think of when they think of occupation sites would be a campsite mm-hmm. so that's one would that would have like um evidence of a hearth or um, other other evidences of sort of like domestic stuff going on. So those are the those those are the types of sites that are used for sort of looking at when um, Aboriginal communities moved across the landscape in in various sort of geographies and are able to see um they're able to to establish sort of like patterns of, of movement and and cool. sort of life ways. Um, as for the doing of archaeological inquiry in in Australia, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, IATSIS, 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 has created the guidelines for ethical research in Australian Indigenous Studies. Jarius, <laughs> they, they they love an acronym. I know, well, there's a lot of words in order. No, uh, I know. And I meant when you when you mentioned above the the article that had Aboriginal Australian co-authors, mm-hmm. um, 
that is a is part of what Jiraeus puts forward. Um, that and you should actually work with the people whose material culture you're studying. Yeah, but it actually goes it goes beyond that. So their their goal is to quote ensure that research with and about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples follows a process of meaningful engagement and reciprocity between the researcher and the individuals and or communities that are involved in the research. What does so, that consist of? So. Uh, Great that you asked. Um, and I'll include a link to the whole thing um, in the show notes. But the guidelines consist of 14 principles that fall under the categories of rights, respect, and recognition, negotiation, consultation, agreement, and mutual understanding, participation, collaboration, and partnership, benefits, outcomes, and giving back, managing research, being use, storage, and access, and reporting and compliance. I feel like those should just be universal guidelines, but... Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, these are great goals to have, and, like, they're shared by many, if not most, I'd like to think most, researchers engaged in indigenous archaeologies all over the world. But there are structural features of Jiraeus that set them apart from other places, uh, like perhaps like NAGPRA, like we have here in the U.S. So some aspects resemble policies like NAGPRA, which um, is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act here in the United States. But whereas NAGPRA is very focused on like science and research, and we've kind of touched upon that mm-hmm. um, when we we did an old, we did a deep cuts on like um, the ancient one that was Otherwise, found around Kennewick. Yeah, so previously known as Kennewick Man. And, and sort of how... NAGPRA was brought to bear on that case where it was like they're like oh but research but we could learn so much but and then respect but research and just it's <laughs> like it's a it's a tough line to, to draw but um Jiraeus is very much oriented towards the rights of aboriginal australian and Torres Strait islanders so okay uh, which is great I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, for example, some cultural materials in museums are secret sacred. Like so, they are. So they're kept. You can't you can't see them. You can't. Ah, that's what it would be in like in. So in the U.S., it would be like, oh, these things have been like identified by descendant communities as sacred. Either we're like, you know, so we, we took it off display. Here's a, a dark case to be like this used to be here. But in Australia. In the case of those collections, those materials are not, like no one, not even museum collection staff, are permitted to access them without the express consent of community elders. There's something like that in museums in um, Arctic communities. So specifically, I'm thinking of the Museum of the Aleutians. Um, there are some Aleut artifacts that are specifically related to uh, seal and whale hunting that are not permitted to be seen or touched or approached by women. And so they're sort of kept back for that reason, sort of out of respect for that taboo. Um, Do you know if curators and stuff like work with them still? I don't know, but a lot of the curators, well, a lot of the staff at that museum, um, either works very closely with the communities that those artifacts belong to or they belong to those communities. Right. So, yeah. And so, there, so I'm not there sure. Are, yeah. So, you know, it's like a lot of people, a lot of non-indigenous people that work in indigenous archaeology are, will sort of comply with. Yeah. Um, as they should. And, like, right. Exactly. So like, but in the case of, like the the guidelines set forward by like Jiraeus, um, it's the rule. So yeah. it is, and so that's sort of like setting like this is the minimum. <laughs> like rather than like it's great when you do this, but like no, this is like this is the least you can do. Um, and so these guidelines not only seek to protect the rights of indigenous communities, but also establish research as a conversation and a continually negotiated and renegotiated relationship that one that benefits not only the academic discipline, but also the living descendant communities whose culture and past are being discussed. So it's like it's very, very, very crucial that you have um, sort of like you know, plain language, advance, informed consent that's freely given and that um, 
you're not just like, and so they, they have guidelines. And so each of the principles will then say applying the principle and say like, so when you're doing this, you will do this. And like the, and, and and it includes things like um, not only asking individuals, like knowing when to ask that you should ask not only individuals, but the community as a whole, um, like giving people writing credit, like uh, for their participation in your work and knowing that there is a, like, you cannot assume that they, that you can come back after you do this research, like whatever your research is, like you have to like be invited and just like sort of like, it's it's, not your stuff. Yeah. It's very much like it's, it's very much based on consent. Like, and then also in order to get any federal funding for your programs, um, you have to prove that that you have done those things. That's cool. Um, which is really, which is great. Um, and, and so one other way, and this is how, this is how I'm going to end this for us. Is it? Oh, you're going to break my brain. (laughs) Oh yeah. Um, oh, don't worry. I broke my mind way. uh, Woof. Woof. So one other way that we can access the pre-colonization past of Australia is by listening to the narratives of Aboriginal Australians and Torres Strait Islanders. So, uh, the English terms dream time and the dreaming are often thought in popular culture to be sort of like creation myths or a kind of oral history um, of Aboriginal communities. But I want to end today's episode with a correction of that because it's actually something way more complicated and way cooler. <sighs> I mean, I'm excited to learn about this, but I also know what a complex thing it is. And my brain is mush. Yeah. So, so well, over me. at The Conversation, mm-hmm. which is a really great clearinghouse of um, like science communication and just communication by experts to the public. Um, Christine Judith Nichols um, at Flinders University wrote a three part explainer that is an ex- introduction to the dreaming. That's really interesting. And like well like a completely different way of viewing absolutely everything than what i'm used to so we'll put it in the show notes so that folks can can read it because it, it gets into aspects of um like contemporary art okay um and and it's it's really really cool but i'm gonna quote her article now <clears throat> The concept is mostly known in grossly inadequate English translation as the dream time or the dreaming. The Jukorpa can be mapped onto microenvironments in specific tracts of land that Aboriginal people call country. As a religion grounded in the land itself, it incorporates creation and other land-based narratives, social processes, including kinship regulations, morality, and ethics. This complex concept informs people eco- people's economic, cognitive, affective, and spiritual lives. The dreaming embraces time past, present, and future, a substantively different concept from populist characteristic characterizations portraying it as timeless or having taken place at the so-called dawn of time. Unfortunately, even in mainstream Australia today, when and where we should know better, schmaltzy quasi new age notions of the dreaming frequently holds still hold sway. The Australian anthropologist W.E.H. Stanner conveyed the idea more accurately in his germinal 1956 essay, The Dreaming, in which he coined the term every when. And he said, quote, one cannot fix the dreaming in time. It was and is everyone. And he added that the dreaming has an unchallengeable sacred authority. Stanner went on to observe that, quote, we non-Indigenous Australians shall not understand the dreaming fully except as a complex of meanings. I mean, that I can deal with. And so it's something that it's not... So it's yeah, so it's something that it, it is both a narrative of like origin and and so in this in the explainer um t- she talks so like so it's it's represented it's represented differently across the continent but but th- talking about how there are sort of the the precursors so like one's ancestors like capital A ancestors and how moving across as they moved across the landscape they um sort of planted languages and hmm. and so like it's a way to conceptualize 
the universe and your place in it. And so it's both pa- it's both past, but it's also practice because yeah. like but, you and, just you have know, to be able to hold a lot of things in your mind at once to sort of. Because it's it's a completely different ontology than like Western ontology. Yeah. And, and um, ways of thinking about time and. Which makes it all the more crucial to include these communities in trying to access things that happened before the present. Yeah. Because conceptually to those communities, that means something different. Yeah. And, and so it's, and this is something that is in the, that is present in any kind of situation where if you are a non-indigenous researcher studying an indigenous subject, but also I think it's important to think about for archaeologists in general because like when you Anna like worked with your like like use and and like use and creation question mark of fire among Neanderthals Neanderthals had an ontology yeah but I wasn't trying to access that no I (laughs) but like but everything that they did yeah, was framed within that. I was, was put within that. So it's I, something that's really interesting to think about. It's something that I love you, thinking about, but I also know I will never be able to access. So have you heard the good news about post-professional archaeology? <laughs> <laughs> so this is what this is something that I love thinking about is just how um, we have like in the in the case of Aboriginal Australians and Tourist Strait Islanders, you have people who are part of the longest continuous cultural right, complex, which is, which is mind-blowing. Yeah, and also fascinating. And uh, no, I, I lost words. And, amazing, and so, yeah. like, if we think about, like, just thinking about looking at what that looks like and looking at how this like the dreaming like how dreaming is a very different sort of reality and a like an epistemology sort of like an establishment of like things being yeah um, why why are we here how are we here yeah and like they've had plenty of time to think about it because <laughs> they've been there for like, 65, like, years ish just thinking about like continuity for that long and how there are plenty of times in the history of human beings that like if you look at it sort of like on paper it's like and then they they kicked it yep for 20,000 years until this new technology appeared but actually and, and so just thinking just like about people like, living their lives just think about what the, yeah just think about like what they like came up with to to explain the world around them and to cement their place in it. Man. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's great. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that case of exploding brain. <laughs> oh, and we really did. I mean, even with the depth of time that that digs into, we really did just barely scratch the surface of Australian archaeology today. So hopefully... It won't take us another 90 episodes to revisit the land down under Terra Australis. But in the meantime, we have a whole world of episodes for your enjoyment at thedirtpod.com. You can listen to literally three days worth of us talking if you want to. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a lot to think about, huh? We've been talking into microphones for days, literal days. Um, But if that's too much for you, (laughs) and we get it, you can also find us on Facebook at the dirt podcast you can find us on twitter at dirt podcast and we're on instagram occasionally at the dirt pod and then if you want like we said up top you can subscribe to us via patreon and get all kinds of extra perks and (laughs) we'll work on it but we will eventually have our streaming up and running at twitch.tv slash the dirt podcast and that will yield videos for our patreon members as soon as we get those cameras so you can when when we figure it out and it works, um, anybody who happens to be around can watch us um, as we stream live. And, we'll and then the videos tweet and Facebook and stuff yeah. a little before we do that. So so you'll be able to see that and get a notification. Yeah. Um, or you can. Well, you can subscribe. You can also subscribe to us. You can. <laughs> so if you have. <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> if you have a Twitch account, which doesn't cost any money, you just have to sign up. But if you sign up, you can subscribe to our channel and then you will automatically get an email notification if we go live. So you'll <laughs> be in the when. know. Um, no, and if, then, not and, if, And when. then after we'll the it. fact, those, those videos uh, will be available for our Patreon members at all levels. Yep. So, so throw us a buck, you get a video. You get a video. We get a dollar. It's great. <laughs> we love it. Thank you all so much for listening. We've lost our minds. We, we love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Oh, goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Oh, goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com members. Thanks again and have a great day.